Today on Golden Girls Sports, we start our second season celebrating Olympic legends, Jesse Owens, Jim Thorpe, Sonia Henney, and Rosen Island? Marcus Allen. Mike Tyson. Extra innings. The tight end decoys, so it looks like we're running a draw play. Magic Johnson. Bobby Old. Tampa Bay Bucks. And they're off! The pig takes the lead. The chicken... Blanche Delivers first aired on September 22, 1990, as the Golden Girls' sixth season premiere. It was written by Gail Parent and Jim Valley, and was the first episode for new director Matthew Diamond. The main story is about Blanche's daughter Rebecca coming to Miami to give birth to her baby after getting artificial insemination the previous season. At the same time, Rose decides to start ice skating competitively again so that she can finally become the big Olympic star that she wanted to be when she was younger. Believe it or not, these two disparate-seeming plotlines will intersect at the end in a payoff that's almost Seinfeldian. Wearing a furry, sequin, blue velveteen skating outfit, Rose announces her intentions to enter the U.S. National Senior Sports Classic to make up for a lost opportunity years ago. I'm going to enter the U.S. Senior Sports Classic, and I'm going to win. I had no idea that you could skate that well. Oh, when I was young, my folks had me trained for the U.S. team. Uh, the day the Olympic Committee came to St. Olaf, I was so nervous. I put my skates on the wrong feet. Oh. <laughs> Sonia Henderfinkins. Winning gold means training hard. So Rose uses her time around the house to strengthen her skating muscles per the instructions of her new coach. How's the skating going? Oh, Coach Ninervini is really disappointed in my compulsory figures. The only way I can make an eight is to start with a snowman and then erase his head and arms. <laughs> By the time I do all that, the judges have lost interest. Yeah. So have I, Rose. <laughs> Honey, why don't you just quit? Oh, they have a name for people who quit. They call them quitters. <laughs> After an argument with Blanche, Rebecca goes into labor and asks Rose to call the hospital and the coach. The coach Becky means is her Lamaze coach. But who does Rose call? You guessed it. She calls her ice skating coach, Mr. Ninervini, who shows up at the delivery room with everyone else. Eventually, they're all thrown out so that Blanche can help Rebecca deliver the baby. And in the waiting room, Rose reveals the real reason she put her skates back on. I guess every mother feels their children are going to be something special when they first see them. And then we disappoint them by not becoming Olympic stars. Oh, Rose. <laughs> Rose, honey, is that why you're training? For your parents? They always wanted me to be a champion ice skater. They were so proud watching me practice. I know their dream was for me to win a gold medal, but I hate ice skating. Rose, listen, you don't have to do anything to please your parents. She's right. I'd like to be proud of Dorothy for something, but I'm not going to kill myself if that day never comes. <laughs> so while Rose may never be a champion figure skater, and Blanche may not like that Rebecca didn't have her baby the old-fashioned way, and Sophia may make Dorothy's life a living hell, the moral of the story is that you should focus on being yourself, not what your parents want you to be. Blanche Delivers was an important episode of television, although not because of Rose's ice skate. 
It discusses, frankly, and with much humor, the concept of artificial insemination by completing the story arc begun in Season 5's The Accurate Conception. Deborah Engel reprises her role of Rebecca, and she'd come back later in Season 6 in Even Grandma's Get the Blues. Engel would play Rebecca in an episode of The Golden Palace, too. Coach Ninervini was played by veteran character actor John O'Leary, who's been a that guy since the early 60s. He's been in a couple of movies like All the President's Men and Airplane, but he mainly plays a lot of judges, lawyers, clergymen, and crusty old guys named as Mr. Something or Other in IMDb. He's most recently been on FX's Baskets as Edwin. The doctor who delivers Rebecca's baby was played by actor Ken Lerner, who's got both a face and a voice you'd probably recognize. He was Principal Flutie on Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and has been in about 150 other things, including The Fabulous Baker Boys and The Running Man, in which he played that slimy agent that gets stabbed with a pen by Arnold Schwarzenegger. He's been in a bunch of TV commercials, too, for T-Mobile, Wells Fargo, Delta Airlines, and a lot of others. At first blush, Sonia Henderfinken sounds like another one of the ridiculous residents from Rose's hometown of St. Olaf, Minnesota, like Elsie Holdenfelder or Hans Gluckenflanken, or Olga Fetchik, or Fritz Stickelmeyer, who may or may not have been in reality Adolf Hitler. But between the same first name, the same last initial, and the same sport of choice, it's hard not to think that Sonja Henderfinken is a not very veiled reference to Sonja Henny, the famous figure skating star, actress, and overall cultural phenomenon. Born in Oslo, Norway in 1912, Sonja Henny began skating at the age of six, combining classical dance training with on-ice moves in a way that nobody had ever seen before. By age 11, she was already in the Olympics, finishing last in the 1924 Games. But she won gold in the next three Olympics and an incredible 10 straight world championships. She brought to the sport elegance, sexiness, and an energy that hadn't existed previously. And she's credited as being the first worldwide figure skating star. Not even a meeting with the real Hitler, in which she gave him a Nazi salute and then denied any connection to him or his party, could derail her worldwide fame. So, naturally, she eventually turned to show business. After her retirement from competition, Henny hooked up with Chicago Blackhawks and Bulls owner Arthur Wirtz to form a traveling skating show that would continue for years. She then signed a five-year contract with 20th Century Fox and broke into the movies with 1936's One in a Million a musical rom-com about a manager that stakes his business on bringing an up-and-coming skating star to Madison Square Garden. One of Henny's co-stars in One in a Million was Don Amici, who would guest on the Golden Girls many, many years later as the monk that is actually Rose's father. In an article for Vanity Fair about Henny's life and career, Laura Jacobs wrote, quote, Sonia may not have been a Ziegfeld beauty, and as an actress, well, she was one of the few female stars in Hollywood not tested for the role of Scarlett O'Hara. It didn't matter. Smiling, spinning, she was giving the world exactly what it wanted. Her movies, so many of them nestled in frosty-paned Middle Europa mountain resorts, were an alternate universe made of powdered sugar, an antidote to Europe's ominous rumbling towards war. End quote. For a time, Henny was one of America's top box office draws, rivaling Clark Gable and Shirley Temple, and co-starred with matinee idols like Tyrone Power and Cesar Romero. It's gay, it's exciting, it's something different under the sun. Sun Valley, the most talked about, read about playground and sports paradise in America, is the locale of a spectacular musical comedy drama, Sun Valley Serenade. Starring Sonia Henning, so radiant, so beautiful, 
so romantic with John Payne. Plus that favorite musical aggregation of sweet and swing music, Glenn Miller and his orchestra, Milton Berle, Lynn Barry, Joan Davis, and the Nicholas Brothers. Now what would you do up in Sun Valley where the temperature's 106 below zero and the snow's up to your neck? Snow? Is it like that? Every day, except when there's a blizzard, then it's worse. It happened in Sun Valley. Of her movies, she said, quote, I want to do with skates what Fred Astaire is doing with dancing, end quote. Henny was married three times, and her first was to Yankees owner Dan Topping. While she made a ton of money in her touring ice shows throughout the 1940s, her second husband, Willie Gardner, convinced her to break away from Arthur Wirtz and create her own show for an even bigger cut of the profits. But the venues were smaller, and a bleacher accident in Baltimore put an early end to the endeavor. Sonia performed in her hometown of Oslo in 1953, played South Africa in 1955, and retired in 1956, the same year she married a Norwegian ship owner. Together, they traveled the world and collected art. But in 1968, Sonia was diagnosed with leukemia. A year later, on a flight back to Oslo for blood transfusion, she died in the age of 57. Sonia Henny, uh, I mean, Henderfinken, wasn't the only ice skating reference on the Golden Girls. In fact, far from it. In Have Yourself a Very Little Christmas, a season five story written by Tom Whedon, the girls compare their favorite things about the holiday. When you think about Christmas, don't you think about giving gifts? Yes, but that's not the first thing. You know, when I think of Christmas, I think of Christmas in New York. The decorations in Macy's window, the show at Radio City, skaters on the ice at Mitsubishi Center. (laughs) Have Yourself a Very Little Christmas premiered in December of 1989. In October of that year, the Rockefeller Group, which owned New York's iconic Rockefeller Center and Radio City Music Hall, sold controlling interest of the company to Japanese real estate developer Mitsubishi Estate. A burgeoning tech giant with lots of dough to throw around, Japan started buying a bunch of American property and companies in the 80s, which led to some low-level panic about a former Axis member taking over our identity. Which sort of explains the laughs that Dorothy gets when she delivers her line. I only know about this from Mad Magazines I read as a kid and from Michael Crichton's Japanese-American murder novel, Rising Sun. Anyway, long story short, the deal with Mitsubishi fell through a few years later and they defaulted on a payment and then backed out altogether. Now, all of Rock Center is owned by commercial property company Tishman Spire, and the skating rink is just called the rink at Rockefeller Center. An adult ticket costs 25 bucks, and even more on peak days and holidays. As expected, ice skating is a big thing in St. Olaf, a town that's apparently winter all year long. In Season 3's And Mom Makes Three, written by Winifred Hervey, Rose tells a story about courage centered around an incident that happened at St. Olaf's local rink. Well, then maybe it's time that you went out and tried to make new friends. It's not that easy to make new friends. It sure wasn't for the first Eskimo family that moved to St. Olaf. (laughs) Especially after they sawed a hole and went salmon fishing in the middle of the local ice skating rink. And then there was the Halloween they gave all the kids whale blubber. (laughs) And then there was the time they borrowed every ice tray in town to build an addition over their garage. What was the point, Rose? I guess after the baby came, they needed more room. (laughs) 
Golden Girls writer Richard Vassie said that, for him, the St. Olaf stories became less fun as they got progressively weirder. Quote, Early on, they were okay because they would take us to this offbeat world. But as the show went on, they got so out there and ludicrous, where we would just sit in the writer's room and try to top the last St. Olaf story in terms of weirdness. Instead, I love the show when it stayed in reality. End quote. In season five's Clinton Avenue memoirs, written by Vassie and Tracy Gamble, there's a more realistic reference to ice skating. This is the one where Dorothy accompanies Sophia back to Brooklyn to look for an old carving her husband Sal had made on a door. At the old house lives a Mr. Hernandez, who lets them walk around the place before he heads out for the afternoon. When it's time to go, Mr. Hernandez opens a bedroom door and Sophia finds what she's looking for. Ma, Ma, Mr. Hernandez has to go. I'm meeting the wife and kids. We are going ice skating. Dorothy, oh my God, can you believe it? Hey, Puerto Ricans can ice skate. (laughs) Dorothy! Dorothy, look. It's the carving, see? Sal loves Sophia. You're Sophia? That's right. B. Arthur said that the Hernandez character made her laugh because he kept reminding Dorothy and Sophia to not take anything. Actor David Correa, who played him, must have made a good impression on Paul Junger, Witt, and Tony Thomas because he was also on three episodes of Empty Nest, the Golden Girls' first spinoff series. He also had small roles in Seven, Beverly Hills 90210, Melrose Place, CSI, and many others. Season 7's Questions and Answers is otherwise known as the one where Dorothy goes on Jeopardy. Instead of hoping her friend does well and wins big, Blanche has her eye on the guy giving the answers. What are you talking about, Blanche? You've never cared about Jeopardy. No, but I do care for Alex Trebek. (laughs) You see, I've never had a Canadian who wasn't on skates. (laughs) Is Blanche talking about a hockey player, a figure skater, a curler, or just any other average Canadian on skates? The world may never know. Directed by Lex Passeris, Questions and Answers was written by Don Siegel and Jerry Prezigian and was based on a real-life situation that had happened to the latter. Prezigian also tried out for Jeopardy and also made it to the final stages before being told by a producer, quote, we don't think people would root for you. He said it was the one time in his writing career that he used an experience straight from his life, and the game show producer on The Golden Girls said the same thing he had heard from the game show producer in real life, quote, word for fucking word, end quote. Questions and Answers also features a cameo appearance by Alex Trebek and Jeopardy! creator Merv Griffin. How does Alex Trebek end up on the Golden Girls? According to him, quote, it pays to be a friend of Betty White, end quote. He also made a guest appearance on Hot in Cleveland later, thanks to that same friendship. Rose may have been forced into ice skating as a kid by her parents, but there was one sport she clearly excelled at, log rolling. It came up on two episodes in two separate stupid St. Olaf stories. In season five's An Illegitimate Concern, written by Mark Cherry and Jamie Wooten, a man shows up at the house claiming to be the bastard son of Blanche's late husband, George. Meanwhile, Sophia enrolls herself and Dorothy in the Shady Pines mother-daughter beauty pageant, which leads Rose to tell the story about her uniquely St. Olafian pageant days. I knew I never should have gotten involved in this mother-daughter pageant. I just wish I'd known how to say no to it. I know what you mean. I should have said no to the Miss St. Olaf beauty pageant. It was 1951. That was the first year they let humans enter, too. 
after the evening gown and log rolling competition. People don't realize how hard it is to roll a log when you're wearing an evening gown. <laughs> and the shocker is I lost out on the intelligence quiz. That episode, by the way, is also the one with Sophia and Dorothy's epic Sonny and Cher impersonation. Log rolling also came up on The Way We Met, the finale of season one that showed us the origin story of the Golden Girls. One of the things we learned was how the girls ended up with their rooms in Blanche's house. Rose tried to settle things the St. Olaf way, but they ended up just flipping a coin. Oh, I see you two are getting acquainted. Yes, I'm just going to take my stuff to my room. It's that second on the left down the hall there. Dorothy, the second on the left is mine. Blanche had promised it to me. Blanche promised it to me too, didn't you, Blanche? Whoops. (laughs) Oh, great, great. What are we supposed to do now? Back in Minnesota, we'd settle this kind of a dispute with some good-natured log rolling. (laughs) Sorry, Rose, my log is in the shop. (laughs) Credited to five writers, Kathy Spear, Terry Grossman, Winifred Hervey, Mort Nathan, and Barry Finero, The Way We Met wasn't planned earlier in the season and was pounded out over a weekend by the entire writing crew. Director Terry Hughes remembers meeting some spent, bleary-eyed writers on Monday morning, but having a table read packed with laughs as we saw the beginnings of how these ladies came to be so close. The one-time work of lumberjacks, who drove cut trees down wild rivers towards sawmills, log rolling, otherwise known as burling, became a fun pastime in the late 19th century. That led to the first world championship in 1898, and in 1926, the formation of the International Log Rolling Association. That group eventually became the United States Log Rolling Association, which is now the governing body for the sport in this country and oversees the annual Lumberjack World Championships in Hayward, Wisconsin. 50 grand in prize money is at stake for competitors taking part in 21 different events encompassing log rolling, sawing, chopping, and tree climbing. The rules of log rolling aren't complicated. Two or more people stand atop a log in some body of moving water. As the log rotates, the competitors do their best to stay on, and the one who hangs on the longest wins. Believe it or not, there is gamesmanship involved. Burlers can disrupt their opponents by stopping the log and changing its rotation, which is called snubbing, or by hopping on the end and dunking the other end in water, which is called bobbing. Dropping your opponent into the drink is naturally called wetting, and experts can dip their toes into the water and splash rivals while they're rolling. The current queen of log rolling is Abby Holscher, who is not only the daughter of world champion and pioneer Judith Shear Holscher, but a world champion herself from the age of 14. The sport is now Abby's career, and she's marketed a water-filled synthetic log that simulates the spin and buoyancy of traditional cedar without the need for spiked shoots. Abby also trumpets the fitness potential of log rolling in a world that's always looking for the next hot workout. Quote, It teaches you balance and footwork and helps you draw on core strength. It's also a great cardiovascular activity. My goal is to make it an Olympic sport, but the best thing about log rolling is that it brings smiles on people's faces. End quote. As of right now, log rolling is not an Olympic sport, and Sonja Henderfinken might not actually be based on Sonja Henny. So let's talk about some actual Olympians who made history and who were also referenced on The Golden Girls. Season 1's That's No Lady, written by Liz Sage and directed by Jim Drake, opens with Sophia and Rose playing Trivial Pursuit out on a Lanai. Their question refers to one of the most famous Olympic athletes of all time. 
Well, famous for everybody but Sophia. Who was known as the world's fastest human being? Dominic Tanzi. It says Jesse Owens here. Trust me, it was Dominique Tanzi. He got four women pregnant in one night. Two in New York, two in New Jersey. With all due respect to Dominic Tanzi, Jesse Owens was indeed the world's fastest man for a long time, before being replaced by names like Carl Lewis and now Usain Bolt. But Owens was more than just a world-class sprinter, long jumper, and hurdler, and even more than a four-time gold medalist. He was the man who showed up Adolf Hitler right in his own backyard, an incredible and awe-inspiring feat even today. Lewis, himself a nine-time gold medalist, once said of Owens winning four events at one meet, quote, I think we kind of overstate how easy it is. And for him to do it back then, with all he had to deal with, I looked at him as someone to aspire to, someone to emulate, not just athletically, end quote. Born in 1913 in Oakville, Alabama, J.C. Owens was the youngest of 10 children. The family moved to Cleveland when he was nine, and he got his name Jesse from a teacher that misheard J.C.'s name. He discovered track in junior high and tied two world records at the National High School Championships in 1933. He attended Ohio State, and at the 1935 Big Ten Championships, Owens embarked on what's been called the greatest 45 minutes in sport. He set five new world records and matched another in just under an hour all while suffering from a back injury so painful that he had to be helped out of the car at the event in Ann Arbor, Michigan. He did the 100-yard dash in 9.4 seconds, which tied a world record, and set a new record in the high jump with an 8.13-meter attempt that would last for 25 years. A few minutes later, he broke two records during the 200-meter dash and two more during the 200-meter low hurdles. But it was a year later when Owens would have his greatest moment. At the Berlin Olympics... German Chancellor Hitler was hoping a strong showing by the host country would validate the Nazi party's racist views. What he got was Owens, a black American, winning four gold medals, breaking or tying nine Olympic records, and setting three new world marks right in his face. In an even more ironic twist, Owens received support and pointers from Luz Long, one of Germany's best competitors. The two men would form a friendship over their common interests beyond track as well. In 1999, Sports Illustrated's Phil Taylor wrote of meeting Owens, quote, Even after you had understood what he had done and how he had mortified Adolf Hitler by winning four gold medals in the 1936 Berlin Olympics, he seemed unreal, and that murky black-and-white newsreel of his Olympic performance only made him more so. As he raced past his competitors, he was more of an idea than man, a charcoal rebuttal to a Nazi notion of Aryan supremacy, end quote. Jesse Owens was the fastest human of his day, and he took both the 200 and 100-meter titles. Here's his lightning-like form as he captures the 100-meter in 10.3 seconds, just a tenth slower than today's record. Dufura was furious that his Nordics were unable to beat Owens and refused to present the gold medal to Jesse. That couldn't dim the pride of the U.S. in the Buckeye bullet. While his performance made him a hero, Jesse Owens wasn't treated as one upon his return to the U.S. He signed some advertising contracts, which meant his amateur status was no longer active. But those jobs quickly stopped coming in, and he was without work. Needing to provide for his young and growing family, he started racing pretty much anything that moved. Local runners, cars, motorcycles, and, most infamously, horses. As a champion, Owens had represented America against the greatest threat the world had ever seen. 
but as a black man in the 1930s and 40s, Owens felt the sting of racism the way any other would have. At a party in his honor held at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York, Owens wasn't even allowed to use the normal elevator and was instead shuffled up the freight elevator. He took odd jobs to pay the bills, but in the 1950s became a guest speaker and the owner of his own public relations company. Jesse Owens died of lung cancer in 1980 at the age of 66, but by then his legend was secured and continues to this day, and not just in trivial pursuit. The 2016 film Race tells the story of Owens' life and incredible run in 1936. Have Yourself a Very Little Christmas also has another reference to a movie about a great athlete who experienced Olympic glory and tragedy and who endured racism in his own country. Later in the episode, the girls volunteer at a soup kitchen. And who shows up wearing a Santa suit looking for a free meal? Dorothy's ex-husband Stan, who's broke from his latest failed business venture. The emotional circumstances bring the two closer together as they remember Christmas's past. Stanley, you've always been able to turn bad holidays around. Do you remember the Christmas we were so broke that you actually convinced the kids that Christmas was the 26th? And then you went out and got a Christmas tree from somebody's garbage. You trimmed it with gum wrappers and pull tabs. And then you turned on the television and they were playing Jim Thorpe, All-American, and you told the kids it was King of Kings. And they believed it, too. Right up to the part where Jesus had his Olympic medals taken away for playing professional baseball. (laughs) Jim Thorpe, All-American, was the 1951 movie about the life and athletic prowess of Jim Thorpe, who has been called the greatest athlete of the first half of the 20th century. In the movie, Thorpe is played by Burt Lancaster, who bared absolutely no physical resemblance to the movie's namesake whatsoever. And although it's highly, highly dramatized, the fondly remembered movie offers a not totally inaccurate account of one of the most amazing American athletes of all time. Jim Thorpe was born in 1887 in a cabin in Oklahoma, or rather, what was known at the time as the Oklahoma Territory. Jim and his twin brother Charlie were born to Hiram and Charlotte Thorpe, who were both mixed race with Native American blood. The family were members of the Sac and Fox tribe, but were also Roman Catholic, and Jim practiced that religion as well throughout his life. His life in Oklahoma was a difficult one. Even as a kid, Jim spent a lot of time outdoors with Hiram stalking animals and wrangling horses. His twin brother Charlie died of pneumonia when they were nine, and his mother Charlotte died of tuberculosis when he was 14. Hard-drinking Hiram, who would die of blood poisoning, sent Jim to Indian schools, none of which were easy for him. Finally, in 1904, Jim was sent to the Carlisle School in Pennsylvania, a government-funded university dedicated to indoctrinating Indian youth into American culture, whether they wanted to be or not. Carlisle wasn't a cakewalk either, but a chance encounter with a couple of high jumpers changed Jim's life. Seeing the two men struggle to clear the 5-foot, 8-inch bar, the naturally gifted Jim gave it a shot, and not only cleared the height, but broke a school record in the process. That got the attention of the school's multi-sport coach, Glenn Pop Warner. Yes, that Pop Warner. And suddenly, the humble strongman was the centerpiece of the school's entire athletic program. In addition to track, Jim also played football, baseball, and lacrosse, and the small Indian school became a formidable opponent for Ivy League universities. In track, Jim could compete in and win every event the organizers could throw at him. Jim left Carlisle briefly in 1909 and played minor league baseball in the East Carolina League in 1910 and 1911. The $60 a month he got from playing those games would come back to haunt Jim in a big way very shortly. 
Back at Carlisle in 1912, Pop Warner convinced Jim to go to New York to compete in the trials for the upcoming Olympics. Jim went, and so blew away the competition that he was added to the U.S. Olympic team before all the trials were even completed. His performance at the Olympics that year in Stockholm are the stuff of legend. In both the 10-event decathlon and the 5-event pentathlon, Jim accomplished feats that still stand against the greatest Olympians of today. He finished first in four of the five pentathlon events, all done in a single day, mind you, including a blistering 1,500-meter run. In the decathlon, and in a mismatched pair of shoes he had to wear when his disappeared, he won the high jump and 110-meter hurdles, and another 1,500-meter run, which he did in 4 minutes, 40.1 seconds. His overall score was 688 points higher than the second-place finisher, and it would be 16 years before anybody would beat his number. With two gold medals in his pocket, Jim returned to Carlisle and led the football team to a 12-1-1 record, piling up over 1,800 yards rushing. Although he wasn't comfortable with his fame and still faced the prejudice of being a Native American, Jim was a hero to the public and already being called the greatest athlete of all time. And then it all came crashing down. The International Olympic Committee found out about Jim's pro baseball time, which meant he shouldn't have competed as an amateur in Stockholm. His gold medals were stripped, and his records were erased from the official book. Jim didn't put up a fight, later telling one of his daughters that he knew he won them, and that was all that mattered. But that indignity didn't derail Jim's athletic career. He played professional baseball, including six mediocre seasons for the New York Giants, and was the first pro football superstar of the pre-NFL era. He could pass and catch and run and kick and tackle with the best of them, and led the Canton Bulldogs to three championships. When the NFL was officially formed in 1920, Jim Thorpe was named the league's first president. Off the field, Jim struggled to find work and provide for his eight kids from three marriages. He held various odd jobs like security guard and ditch digger and took many uncredited roles in movies, often playing Indian characters in westerns. But he did get into a few classics like King Kong, Road to Utopia, Meet John Doe, and White Heat. Jim Thorpe died in 1953 of heart failure. He was 65 years old. In 1982, the IOC finally announced that, quote, the name of James Thorpe will be added to the list of athletes who were crowned Olympic champions at the 1912 Games, and two gold medals were awarded to the surviving members of his family. However, Jim's records were never reinstated into the official Olympic record book, making the gesture kind of a hollow one. Official or not, his name lives on among the most accomplished and unique sportsmen this country has ever produced. Like Jesse Owens, the racism that Thorpe experienced was a horrible but integral aspect of his story that makes it quintessentially American. As is the part where the son of displaced Native Americans was played by movie star and native New Yorker Burt Lancaster in the sanitized version of his life. Jim Thorpe, All-American, the man of bronze who became the greatest athlete of all time. An Oklahoma Indian lad whose untamed spirit gave wings to his feet and carried him to immortality. Here in a mighty cavalcade of sport are all the giants who face this champion among champions, each test adding new honors to his ever-growing fame. Here is the thrilling panorama of the Olympic Games, the nation's praise for its returning hero. Besides skating, log rolling, and ice fishing, there was another popular sport in St. Olaf. In Season four's Bang the Drum Stanley, written by Robert Bruce and Martin Weiss, 
We learn about, well, I'll just let Rose explain it. I was injured during a spirited game of go wackanoggin. <laughs> Should I? Oh, what the hell? Rose, what is go wackanoggin? It's a lot like baseball, except instead of hitting a ball, you whack yourself on the head. After 10 whacks, if you're still standing, you take first base. It's usually a very low scoring game. <laughs> As ridiculous as they were, and as hard as they might have been to write, Rose's St. Olaf stories helped create this fully realized world that you could practically picture in your mind. The show wouldn't be the same without them. There is, in case you didn't know, the St. Olaf College, located in Northfield, Minnesota. Betty White, the real Betty White, has visited St. Olaf College and received an honorary membership to their Theater Honor Society. I remember when I found that out myself, I was in college at St. John's University and worked on the staff of The Spectator, the campus humor magazine. We shared an office with the yearbook staff, and they had a bunch of other yearbooks laying around from other schools. Anyway, one of them was from St. Olaf College, and this blew my mind. I thought I had uncovered some kind of lost Rosetta Stone or something. But there were no Nylons or Henderfinkens or Sticklemeyers in that book, and I was extremely disappointed. Next time on Golden Girls Sports, did Sophia Petrillo actually help the New York Jets achieve their greatest victory? Sure sounds like it. Golden Girls Sports is written, produced, and narrated by Dan Saracini. The theme is Golden Sunrise, instrumental version by Josh Woodward, and is available at freemusicarchive.org. Visit goldengirlsportspodcast.com for show notes and references, Follow us on Twitter at Golden Girls SP. Thanks for listening.